Fusion Patrol is a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can help support us at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. This is the Fusion Patrol podcast. Each week, we look at a different science fiction TV episode or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm John. And tonight we're taking a a little bit of a detour here. And we're going to be looking at, and I think this is the first time we've ever looked at a strictly 100% audio drama. But tonight we're going to be looking at the Big Finish Productions Space 1999 reimagining of Breakaway. The opening story. So we'll start with a synopsis. The year is 1999 in an alternate timeline without so many Republicans. And Earth has a freaking moon base near light speed travel and a space program interested in manned spaceflight. John Koenig, the original commander of Moonbase Alpha, is returning to take up the post once more during the final phase of the Metaprobe, a manned flight to a planet five light years away. What Koenig does not know is that a strange illness is killing the pilots on Moonbase Alpha, including the flight crew for the Metaprobe. Koenig has been sent by Commissioner Simmons to ram through the final stages of the Metaprobe at all cost. On Moonbase Alpha, Dr. Helena Russell has been particularly frustrated with Simmons and outgoing Commander Gorski. She has been desperately trying to save lives, but Simmons and Gorski have kept her cut off from Earth, unable to consult medical experts. Simmons wants no wind of a problem getting out before the Metaprobe launches. Koenig arrives on the base and meets his old friend and colleague, Victor Bergman. Bergman fills him in, and Dr. Russell gives him an earful. She knows Koenig is just another puppet of Simmons, there to do his dirty work. What she does not know is that despite being committed to the Metaprobe, John Koenig doesn't like what he's finding out and demands Simmons give Dr. Russell access to the experts. Koenig sets about methodologically to solve the problem, but it is clear that the situation is very much a threat to the Metaprobe, and Simmons doesn't care how many people die as long as the probe launches on schedule. Simmons tries to convince Koenig that it's all worth it by playing for him a top-secret recording of a complex signal being sent to Earth from Meta. There are signs of water, atmosphere, and what appears to be a non-natural signal being sent to them. There's a strong chance there is intelligent life on Meta. The moon base is filled with tourists, even school children, all there to see the Meta probe launch. With the desks mounting up and no clue as to what is causing them, Koenig, against Simmons' wishes, orders the evacuation of all non-essential personnel. Simmons removes Koenig of command and heads to the moon to take command himself. One of the tenuous leads was that all of the affected pilots routinely visited Nuclear Waste Dump 1, and while there is no radiation leakage, a strange rise in heat begins. Bergman and his team analyze all the data and the meta-signal, and a pattern begins to form. There was a mysterious, 
off-the-record shipment delivered to Waste Dump 1, even though it had been closed for years. And the signal from Meta is not being beamed towards Earth. It's being beamed directly at the moon. Somehow, the signal, the mystery boxes, and the nuclear waste are creating exotic matter. And as Simmons arrives, Waste Dump Area 1 explodes. Now, Waste Area 2, which is massively larger, is beginning to show the same heat rise. Simmons allows Koenig to stay in command as the Alphans attempt to break up the nuclear mass in Area 2. As things get worse, Koenig orders the Metaprobe to launch early, reasoning that the only answers to this mystery are on Meta, and even though it's five years away, it's their only hope. Something goes wrong. The near light speed queller drive aboard the Metaprobe runs at hyper power, combining somehow with the erupting waste dump two and creating a traversable wormhole, launching the moon out of Earth's orbit into outer space. With no hope of ever returning, and the real possibility that Earth has been utterly destroyed, the Alphans must make a new home for themselves amongst the stars. Their first stop, the planet Meta, which the moon is now approaching. The end. So, uh, John, you were not uh, with us as we did our uh, walkthrough on Space 1999, originally, right. the, the classic series. Um and I can't promise this, um, but my recollection is that if not the best, then certainly darn near the best of all the episodes of Space 1999 was Breakaway. It's tight, it's suspenseful, and it, it's, it, is a, it does an amazingly good job of setting up everything that you need to know and setting the moon on its course throughout space. So here we have Big Finish Productions, which uh, we have talked about on the podcast before. We have done some Big Finish stuff. Uh, I think they did a restaging of Shada in animated form that we looked at, and there was also a, a Six Doctor adventure that was done in animation form that we looked at that was based on a Big Finish, or or was done by Big Finish, but it, was, it wasn't just an audio. And... I personally am a pretty big fan of them. I, I think they do some amazing work. And and perhaps we talk to that later. But but here they are taking their approach to Space 1999 uh, 20 years after Space 1999 was supposed to happen. So I'll open it to you. What did you think of this uh, this story and, and this production? Well, I, I quite enjoyed it. I've, I've heard other Big Finish uh, Doctor Who episodes before over the years. Mm-hmm. And uh, this one, I liked it quite a bit. Now, admittedly, it did take me a couple minutes to get used to not hearing the usual actors and actresses playing the parts that you know I grew up with back right. in the seventies. But you know that's that's fine. Um, they did a fine job. Uh, Nicholas Briggs, who, uh, who wrote this, mm-hmm. did a, a really good job of adapting it to a radio play, and. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was great. Uh, it was wonderful hearing all the sound effects and uh, uh, you know, kind of little extra stuff that we never saw in the TV series. Uh, it, it was good. I liked it. Liked it quite a bit. It, it had the same feeling as the uh, the original, you know, the the TV version of it. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. It did uh, did a fantastic job of of uh, explaining everything you need, needed to know about the series 
very well. Uh, it didn't leave you thinking, well, that doesn't make any sense. Or if it did, then, you know, it'll it's easier to explain. Save that et cetera, for later episodes. Well, yeah. It, the yes. trademark of Space 1999. <clears throat> uh, what? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure what I just saw. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, and and that's a good you know that's a point. Will will their future episodes? So they are planning to do some more. They're doing mm-hmm. this in conjunction with uh, Anderson. I don't know if it's Anderson Productions anymore, but Jerry Anderson's son is okay. on board on this. And as you you may know, there have been several attempts to restage Space 1999, Space 2099. There was a guy who was trying to just re-edit Space 1999 as tw- Space 2099. Yeah. <laughs> like, I never saw any of those, but I'm going to guess they didn't do very well. He only produced a trailer or a, a demo can, reel. Can imagine and, that, you yeah. Know, it would have been fine, but at the same time, you know, that's... I don't think that's what fans are clamoring for. I think no. the fans of the show want more adventures in space 1999 right. universe, not going back and redubbing the old ones and saying, and maybe updating the special effects. Right. Although, you know, they still look really good even to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the first official space 1999 revival. And it's being done in this form. And, I've heard enough uh, podcasts with Nick Briggs, who, in addition to being an executive producer at Big Finish, uh, as you say, he was the writer. I believe he was also the director on this Okay. Um, story. And he has something and to do with Doctor Who, but I'm not quite sure. He's the voice of the Daleks. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, <laughs> he's also, oddly enough, the voice of the Daleks for all Big Finish productions, too. Well, you know, I guess... Why not? <laughs> you know, he's familiar so, uh, with the work, so yeah, he he definitely has the has to work down. And again, I guess you know, heaping praise on Big Finish, they've done just some amazing work with the classic Doctors. I mean, they have. I always liked Colin Baker. Don't get me wrong; I always liked Colin Baker. Right, but Colin Baker was so badly served by the terrible, <laughs> terrible stories that he was given, and yes. he is. And the he's costume. their best doctor. He, he's yes. their best doctor. He has I've heard a hundred episodes. It's really good. And and they've just, you know, they haven't changed him so much that you would think, oh, they're not even playing the same guy. But at the same time, they've taken what worked and what didn't work and they've they've played it out. And they've, Peter Davison's stories are good. Even Sylvester McCoy's, whose stories who I don't like at all. I mean, I, I don't really like Sylvester. I, I don't dislike the man, but. Right, Even yeah. there, they've done a great job. They've done a great job with Paul McGann. They've got they've got Tom Baker on board now. They've got David Tennant on board. They've got mm-hmm. uh, you know it, it, it. They just they they love it. And but if you hear Nicholas Briggs talk, which is where I was going, he and several of the other production crew on this are huge Space nineteen ninety nine nerds. So they have brought. It, it's obvious they've brought that passion to this project. You mentioned the special effect, the sound effects. Oh, yeah, they were they're, great. They're, they are Moonbase Alpha sound effects. Yeah, they got them all. They could have just played that, and and I think they're re, they've they've redone them. They've made them again. But you could have just played those sound effects for me, and I could have told you, oh, Comlock, uh, Moonbase Alpha Scanner. I mean... A button being pushed. A Moonbase Alpha button on an eagle. Take yep. off. I mean, it all was just absolutely... They made a new theme song. Well, mm-hmm. it's the same music, but they did a new version of it. Right. Great. 
I mean, maybe not as good as the original, but but I'm used to the original. It, it's so iconic, but right. still, it, it's. I, I think you hear a little bit of the original one when they're doing the uh, the news breaks. The and Space 1999 Space show. Space 1999 yeah. show. Yeah, exactly. Which I thought was great. It's like, oh, that was, that's, that's perfect. That was clever. Yes. Um, I, I don't know whether that's the original or not. I, my, my understanding is that they, amongst other regions, probably not wanting to pay um, or trying to keep the budget down, they had to redo the music if for no other reason than it needed to be stereo. Oh, okay. Yeah, because the sense. original one just doesn't, and and I guess when you're working in audio, they with the new technology and the higher resolution of audio recording and everything, they just they basically had to do it. And if you're listening huh. to it with headphones on, it is very it's complex, hmm. right? You're you're getting you're getting oh you're hearing stuff you just wouldn't have heard. So I, I, I the love and the care really show, and the other thing that really show i'll lead with this much has been said i mean it's a joke in in science fiction fandom in space 1999 fandom right that it wasn't very long after the show came out that that somebody maybe asimov or arthur c Clarke, came out and said the force needed to blast the moon out of the Earth's <laughs> orbit would destroy the yes moon. it would pulverize it yes i've read it that pulverize the moon so they had to redo that. And, exactly. and of course, and... the whole bit about the moon traveling dis interstellar distances and <clears throat> all of that is Im absolutely implausibly awful. And, and we right. encountered so many examples in the original series exactly. of the oh, science black hole. being oh, so no wrong. Problem. Yeah, it's a yeah. black hole. Oh, this is our galaxy looking at... <laughs> you know, Earth's solar system. Our galaxy has nine planets. Like, really, yeah. Koenig? <laughs> you exactly. of all... Um, so, the, whoever was... The people writing Space 1999 definitely did not run it past a third grader and in their scientific science. And well, whether did, or not this would pass was... a third grader or not uh, now, but they right. definitely tried to make a more plausible science fiction explanation for what the heck happened. Yes. And I like it because it ties up a loose end or it, it creates a something the, the whole thing about at the end of breakaway, they're like, Oh, the meta signal. Ah, maybe there never see meta. Right. Exactly. That's the, that's it. That's it. It's the end of it. Nope. Mm -hmm. Nothing more. Yep. So, here, uh, you know, I don't know what's going to happen in the next episode, but my guess is it's going to take place at Meta will be their very first planet. And and who knows, we might even get some answers that we never got in the past about the series. Right. And I don't know, you know, the mystery is cool, but at the same time, they're going to have to do better than, oh, well, now we're passing another solar system. How are you passing another solar system? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I am I am so looking forward to that. Oh, and that I what I was going to say is that they are planning at least another box set, and I don't know what the release date is. It's not currently visible on their website, but they are doing new stories and reimaginings of 
old stories. Ah, good. So I kind of wish maybe they'd stick with news stories, but we'll see. We'll see. I'm I'm never too keen on reimaginings just as a basic rule, but here, two snaps up, four thumbs, and a, a round of golf claps to... Exactly. To... Yeah, they did a really good job of this. I am eagerly looking for it, and I and I hope you know I, we've said this before about Doctor Who animations. Go buy them, people. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> if you're a Space 1999 fan, throw them a few bucks and and tr- check it out. Um, and and we'll we're gonna talk more about it here. This is feature length. Yes, uh, I think it's ninety ninety plus uh, minutes on it. Yeah, sounds about right. And. I think it gives it a little more room to breathe. I think Breakaway probably originally probably had enough material that they cut out that could have made it into a a longer adventure because it it, it was such a solid opening in the original series. So you mentioned mm-hmm. the character changes. Obviously, uh, these are not uh, Martin Landau dead. You yes. know, uh, Barry Morris dead. Uh, you know, none of those people. Uh, this is an entirely new cast. Dead. So yeah. starting with Mark Bonar as John Koenig. Yes. What did you think of his performance? Uh, it was pretty good. Once again, it was, I, I kind of had to, uh, you know, uh, let my brain idle a little bit while I was trying to digest the uh, not uh, Martin Landau, who was speaking. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he did probably a better job of... Commander Koning than Martin Landau did. I mean, I hate to say it acting wise. <laughs> um, he just, he, I don't know, the, the character was more believable. So, yes, <laughs> he, he, he was real. Uh, my main complaint about him is that the man has got an incredibly thick Scottish accent. Naturally. I was going to say uh, his accent, or to our ears, the lack of it, was odd. It, it was a little odd. It just, I was going to say he's Canadian. But uh, yes. yeah, he's he's Scottish apparently. So yeah, that's oh, very thick, very thick, very thick Scottish. Well, then you, yeah, that's quite amazing that he was able it's, to. It's it's David Tennant level. Accent. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, he does a lot of uh, big Finnish uh, productions as uh, a renegade Time Lord known as the Eleven. So I think that's where huh. they, I guess they were, you know, worked with him and he heard about this and I guess he's a fan. So huh. he uh, got in there and, and did a convincing accent to them. And, and it's fine. It's fine. It, as you say, it's kind of Canadian. It's kind of Northeastern. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not quite the neutral American accent that we yeah. that A couple we states over expect. to the mid-Atlantic uh, accent. <laughs> One of the things that was pointed out in there, uh, some of the interviews, is that the acting in space 1999 uh, particularly in the first season was apparently meant to be a little 2001 hmm. a little lower key okay right? uh, doesn't work in audio no no you just sound like you're asleep yeah the only Very thing tired. you've got <laughs> to convey acting to the audience is mm-hmm. wait for it your your expressiveness exactly and so all of these characters are kind of amped up compared to dr russell uh, is uh definitely uh amped up 
put it put nicely. <laughs> Let's talk about Teresa. <laughs> uh, Maria Teresa Creasy is the actress or mm-hmm. actor uh, who plays the part of Dr. Helena Russell. What did you think of her American accent? Um, more American than uh, Mark Bonner. Okay. But. Okay. Uh, that's her real accent. That's her real accent? Okay. She is American, yes. She's American, okay. I thought she was putting one huh. on, too. A little bit. It was but, just her line delivery that is, I don't know, sounded kind of odd once in a while. But having a, a, a person play the part of Dr. Russell in such a, uh emphatic way was kind of odd. Maybe I need to see the series again, but I don't remember Dr. Russell being that uh, expressive and, and, you know, profoundly dedicated to her job and, and, uh, and uh, as upset as she was at not being able to do her job properly. I think it's fair to say that although we are told Dr. Russell is very dedicated and very uh, committed. And I'm not going to say that she wasn't, but again, that sort of understated playing, mm-hmm. she doesn't come off that way. And I, and no. I think, you know, there's just a huge difference between how a professional woman would be portrayed in 1975 versus 2019. Mm, and true. I believe they've given her a lot more agency it is jarring that she is the only one that that calls people asshole and <laughs> yes stuff like that <clears throat> yeah in, in the course of the story it does feel out of place when everyone else is not yeah i think we're supposed to get from that that it is her extreme frustration of living under these clamp down conditions for weeks that she has just had enough yeah that she doesn't care anymore well she cares but i mean she doesn't care what she says anymore. So that right, will her, be interesting to see if she turned off. continues that way. It's going to get all uh, uh, Dr. McCoy on him and, and start swearing at him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Victor Bergman, played by a man named Clive Hayward. Uh, you know, of uh, comparing to the original cast, I'd say he's probably the, the closest I can... Uh, Completely agree. Yeah, I mean, he and Barry Morris, yeah. Great. Yeah, they they definitely, you know, they said, okay, we want you to play the part of Victor Bergman. Can you sound like Barry Morris? Oh, no problem. He's not doing an imitation. That's his voice. Okay, there you go. Yeah. So, perfect. I mean, he's doing, he's, he's doing a uh, good. Uh, I'm not going to go over each uh, each of the others uh, at great detail, but we're going to mm-hmm. say the, the man, Glenn McCready, playing Alan Carter and Paul Morrow. <laughs> I, I couldn't have uh, actually said they were two separate people. <laughs> well, Alan's got the Australian accent, and uh, and Paul does not. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And then we have uh, Sandra, and uh, they pronounced it a, yet a different way, but it's been Benis Beans, Benz, Beans, yeah, Beans, Sandra, Beans, yeah. Um, Sandra and Kano has been uh, swapped out. Uh, is now a woman. Dashka right. Kano. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's I, fine. Yeah. I think that balances the cast out better, and I think yes. that's a, yeah. a good, a good, a good mix. And they also gave them more, again, agency. Mm-hmm. They did stuff in this story. They were they were integral. Yeah, they weren't just set dressing. 
yeah you know, it's and, kind of there uh, to, to play off from uh uh landau and uh, uh bane yeah yeah all right taking some of the stuff about the story one of the things that i really liked about this and and you're probably going to hear this over and over again things i really liked about this because <laughs> i i did really like it i i can't imagine having fewer quibbles about a remake and you know how i am oh right? yeah remakes yeah, do not quibbles. do yeah. not a, a thing for me but there are times space 1999 always felt like just you know just slightly amiss greatness just on the cusp but not quite getting it and and who knows maybe maybe here but one of the things i really liked and i hope it carries forward is that koenig when he comes in he's he's there to get something done he never abandons that until you know the lives are just too much at stake right he's but at the same time unlike simmons he's not willing to just let people keep dying right exactly exactly and he's going to solve that problem so this is this is john koenig he's a not only is he an administrator but he is problem solver and he's a compassionate human being that's the trifecta that we need <laughs> and that we lost on commander koenig as time went on in the tv series it's all that strange space radiation <laughs> probably did it. <laughs> it Too many black holes. Space radiation. Whatever Victor was giving him left or, you know, they left the main <laughs> mission. I don't know. Who knows what? He, um, he tries to solve the problem. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He goes out there and he starts working on the data and he's like looking over the records and stuff. And he goes, oh, look at this. They're all traveling over uh, Area 2 or Area 1. And they go, yeah, yeah, we got that. Um, mm -hmm. But it's not that. We know it's not that because we've checked it. We've checked it. We've double checked it. We've checked it. But it's like, but it's such a, it has to be. Right. Right. So they turn it over to Bergman and his team. And his team in this case is Sandra and Kano. And they work this stuff and they find it, which is exactly what never happened <laughs> on Space 1999. Koenig always had to be the one to save the day with the possible exception of dr russell saving someone's life which off the top of my head i can't remember her ever saving anyone's <laughs> life her, her death record is terrible yeah but yeah but koenig always said I, I still remember the scene where he and alan are in an eagle and they've desperately got something's happening and they've desperately got to reach that switch and pull the switch down and it's closer to Alan and he can just, just get his hand on it. And then, oh, Alan's going to save the day. And then he has to fall back and then Koenig has to work the switch. And you're just like, wow, is that yep. Martin Landis Connor? But here, I, yeah, I Koenig so. <laughs> is on the right path. He's, but he is not the expert. The expert in data analysis are the data analyst and the computer expert and dr bergman working together and with the tools that they have and oh please let Moonbase alpha work that way in this series <laughs> yes they actually work as a team oh boy as a team where the people who who do the things that need to you know who's the best pilot on the thing it should be alan although we do know that koenig is basically probably had alan's job at one point yes. so yeah 
Yeah. You know, those two are rivals. But, yeah. you know, who's the sciencey guy? Let's talk to Dr. Bergman. Who's the medical person? Let's go to Dr. Russell. Let's have that team working and and shoot Koenig's marching orders, but, you know, an ultimate responsibility. But, oh, oh that would just a huge improvement in the show. It does diminish, in a way, the hero agency of Koenig, but... This is an ensemble show, and I think mm-hmm. they're going to have to play it that way. So, yeah, I don't think there's any problem with that. I also I liked the fact that Koenig and Russell were not on a first name basis, right? Until the moment where, and you know, there's Nick Russell is unreasonable <laughs> towards yeah. Koenig. She's she's literally unreasonable to it. She well, has prejudged him as a puppet and a, a patsy. Right, exactly. Figures just another idiot from Earth sent up here to screw things up. Yeah. Yep. And Koenig ha- seems to me like he's making a sincere effort the entire time. He gets her in touch with the experts on Earth. He, yep. he you know, he gets stuff run through. He, even though he'll say things like, hey, you know, I think we should check the radiation. They go, we already checked the radiation. He's like, I'll tell you what, I'd like to check the radiation again. Hmm. I can see how that might not play well, right? I mean, it's like, I, I'm sure you did your job right, but I think I'm going to check, okay? Right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> things like that. It's the moment that she says, well, you know, I don't want to kill these people, and it would. Be, I don't care if it's professional suicide, I'm making my report. And right. Koenig says to her, look, fine, but please help me. <laughs> right? right exactly. Hat in hand. I need your help. Will you help me try to save lives right. and you know, accomplish all the bit, goals? Yes. And that is the moment where both of them switch to John and Helena. Yep. Yep. I, I thought that was you know both a good time for it, but also... You know, we, we know that they have to have a closer relationship, hopefully not a romantic relationship like they tried to do in season two of Space 1999. But uh, let's not but, speak of season two. <clears throat> we shall not speak of season two. <laughs> Although I would have been so happy if at some point they had re- called somebody named Tony down in security. That actually would have been cool. Yes. I'll, yes, I'll take a Tony Verdeshi. Yeah, I'll take a Tony Verdeshi. You know, Um Yes, Even if he's just a minor alpha. character who pops up once in a while down in the security base. Um, exactly. Exactly. Or somebody who poisons everybody with his beer. I don't know. Oh, it's <laughs> it later was, on. Is that guy in security making beer again? Yes. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Keep him out of here, main mission, would you? <laughs> so uh, the character development, the rapport between Koenig and Bergman works immediately. Oh, yeah. Well, they've they've known each other. So, yeah. But on, on, I want to say on camera, on audio, it, it works. Um, yeah. Simmons is not quite the cartoon character that he is in the original. Eh, darn close. I mean, he's definitely, he's definitely the playing the bad guy. <clears throat> yeah. Right? But you can kind of see why he's doing it and i think that's the key to any bad guy i mean he's he's facing everything being taken away from him yeah 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 and would i make that choice probably not not in the way he did it anyways not in the way he made it (laughs) no but at the same time 
you know, one of the one of I think complaints I would have about the U.S. space program um, is that after the uh, the Challenger, we became averse to the idea that people are going to die. Yes, yep. in space exploration. Right. Everybody forgot about what happened in uh, Apollo One with the the pad fire that killed the crew, and you know, decades later, we lose a shuttle vehicle. And then it's like, oh, well, this is dangerous. We shouldn't do yeah, it. we can do it. Like, right. Um, and you know that there are people huh. lining up to do that job. Oh, heck yeah. Danger or not. It's like, yeah, I know. It might happen. And and right. it might. Yeah. But space. Exactly. Final frontier. You know. Exactly. And there, it's, it's a big endeavor and there are big risks and... In a way, that's what Simmons is playing off of here. Right. Space is dangerous, but we will lose everything if we don't we don't plow on. And I, I mm. some risks are worth taking. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a little more believable when you work out that the risks you're taking are your own and not taking them for someone else. I think yeah. that's where we go wrong here. Or if the person who's taking the risk is fully uh, fully aware of what's going on. I signed up for this and I might die from it. And if I do, well, there you go. Right. I have a I have a, a nerd moment while I was listening to this. We are told that Alpha became Moonbase Alpha in 1989 and that John Koenig was the first commander. Right. After it had been a base for a secret military purpose. Right. Yes. 1986 is... <laughs> Shadow. Yep, exactly. Moonbase. Hmm, maybe there are aliens out there. Huh. Hold on. It gets better. Yeah. The MO of the aliens in UFO was that they had operatives on Earth doing stuff, secret spy stuff, like yes. getting secret shipments of strange materials delivered to places that they shouldn't be able to. Oh. Oh. That's exactly the kind of stuff that they did. Interesting. I wonder if this could be the uh, the beginning of a the the Space 1999 UFO tie-in that so many people have speculated about for years and years. When we ended mm. the episode here. Yep. The sound effects that were playing as they approached Meta, yeah, sounded a whole Heck of a lot like the sound you got in oh, UFO. The alien ship was flying? Uh, no, kind of the space noise that they would oh, make. Space noise, huh. It's a little bit of a combination of like the space noise and the UFO noise. Uh, so like when the end of UFO, they would have that sort of... Yeah, yeah. We kind of got that. And, huh. it, and I, you know, obviously they're recreating okay. it, but it, it wouldn't surprise me to go... You know, why not? That's space noise in uh, Jerry Anderson universe. And we knew there was a planet that the aliens came from. Uh, we know there's intelligent life there. For some right. reason, well, the timeline when they tried to link the two together had basically the aliens stopped trying to invade. And maybe they figured out a better way of doing it. They hmm. just stopped, you know, and so eventually Shadow converted the base out to alpha and and that was 
kind of the timeline. And I wouldn't be surprised if that isn't exactly what they're going for here. But that would be a, a, an amazing homage to oh, yeah, the combination no of the two. Wow, so, that would be amazing. Astounding, actually. And even if they don't, even if Meta turns out to be something completely different, it still feels like something that the aliens did in UFO. And I, uh, again, the fan, the fan in me looking at the fan in Nick Briggs says, yeah, come on. <laughs> he had to have been thinking that. He had to have been thinking about that. But it does raise this question. We are told repeatedly that there are people on the commission, space commission, who are opposed to the cost of space exploration. Big shock there. We, we know that from the pathetic reality timeline we live in. And this is why Simmons has to do what he has to do or feels he has to do what he, ha what he does. Right. Are we convinced that that is how the space commission would behave if they knew we were receiving intelligent signals from the planet Meta? Cause see, that's the part that kind of throws mm -hmm. me here. It's like, I can believe it. If you're, if you're gambling on sending a mission to an unknown planet, five light years away, that's going to take five years before you reach the place, 10 years before you're ever going to hear anything back from them to know anything at all. And it's a huge amount of money. It's a great risk. And I can see how that might rumple some feathers, but, but you'd think that their, their level of interest would be a lot higher if they knew all the information that Simmons knows about water, atmosphere, intelligent life signals. Possibly the pesky aliens who were uh, the cause for Shadow's creation. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so I, that was the one bit that I was like, yeah, you're, I, I find it hard to believe that they would be fighting. So, and surely the commission knows. Yeah. I, geez, something like that. You'd want to, you know, that is what you're going to lead with when you're going to be asking for budgets. You know, I can see how you might keep it from the public. <laughs> well, I don't know. Well, until you get closer. I mean, but that, that seems like the thing you toss out there and you go, well, actually, Let's be honest here. When Koenig is saying we need to postpone this mission, what what does Simmons do? He says, John, listen to this. Yeah. There's life there. So you would think that when the public is going, don't you think we ought to be spending some money here on Earth to yeah, exactly. uh, clean up Let's the say, kudzu oh, infection wait. in Florida? Hey, listen to this. <laughs> There's life on Meta. Right. Now what do you think? Yep. <laughs> Uh, and I, I get that maybe some people will go, ah, no, there can't be life elsewhere because God only created it here or whatever. But Right. Or, you know, I'm sure they have their own problem. Let's still fix ours first. Yeah, that sort of stuff. But no, I think most people would be going, oh, yeah, OK, let's let's go uh, check that out then. Sure. Let's go and let's put some atomic weapons on there just in case we need them. Exactly. We might need them. <laughs> yep. Um. Meanwhile, this guy named Stryker says, yes, I think we need weapons on the ships. We get a call back to the Queller Drive. I thought that mm -hmm. was clever. Actually, I actually had to look that up. Yes. And it, it sounded familiar, but it's like, huh, hmm. But yeah. In the episode good, yeah. Voyager's Return, mm -hmm. we are introduced to Ernst Queller, who is, I think it's Ernst Queller, who is actually a scientist on board at Moonbase Alpha under an assumed name because... His experimental faster-than-light drive 
killed a bunch of people because it's extremely dangerous. Yeah. And apparently we launched a Voyager probe using one of these Queller drives and it wiped out an entire civilization. And now they're coming looking for retribution. And when they find the poor little moon, they're going to kill us all. But yep. here they've, they've once again taken the whole kind of space 1999 space exploratory backstory and they've all melded it into one mm -hmm. yep. using that combining it with the exotic matter and creating a, 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 a plausible scientifically plausible you can't see the air quotes sure. but scientifically plausible <laughs> oh, they're there they're there tra transversible wormhole to uh to transport the moon away yep. from the earth so I, all activated I, by that strange signal Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I also just amused the heck out of me, and I don't typically like meta references, <laughs> but the fact that Simmons asks, you know, if the nuclear waste dumps blow up, would it be possible that the moon would be blasted out of Earth's orbit? <laughs> and and the the boffins go, no, that big of an explosion would destroy the moon. So don't worry, that's not going to happen. <laughs> okay. Okay, now, now we've got the author talking just to the nerdy fans out there that know Space 1999 and saying, Yep. We're going to fix this. <laughs> One thing that's different, and the, I don't the know The annoying if it's partition gonna... between uh, Koenig's office and main mission. <laughs> what now? The, the door, the partition between main mission and his office. Yes, they have it. Now opening main mission partition. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he had that the in the original series. Really? I don't remember that. Yes, his office had, but, uh, it, it, had the partition, it didn't have a computer it, saying that. Right, exactly. And I think that's the funny thing. It's like, oh, you're wasting three seconds of your life every time that thing uh, has to make the announcement before it actually starts opening the door. I guess that's true. That's true. Um, very very but, Douglas Adams. But... It tells us something about John Koenig versus Commander Gorski. It keeps the door closed. Or he opens Dorsky it Gorski never while, opened it. Right, exactly. They said that. I don't think I've ever seen that door open while Gorski was here. So yeah, it tells us about like Koenig's that, yeah. command style. Yep. Hands on and in your face. Or <laughs> <Wait, laughs> collaborative. Or collaborative, uh, yeah. Part of the team. Gorski is just behind a door to tell you what to do and then leave him alone and right. get on with watching well, his Russian he, videos. Pretty much he was just there to oversee the uh, the waste disposal, you know, and, and kind of keep the status quo, not do anything. You know, especially yeah, which, with Simmons telling him not to do anything. So it's a good question. What is Moonbase Alpha's function in this in this reality? Um, it sounds like it, it is primarily to maintain the storage of uh, radioactive waste, which why it's on the moon is beyond me, but that's totally separate discussion right there uh, i guess space travel is very safe uh and then secondly would be some sort of research and you know the the standard jumping off point for further exploration of the galaxy that sort of stuff you'd think the commander would have more to do than oversee the nuclear waste then yeah you'd think yeah he delegates I mean, very well okay let's talk about it <laughs> one of the problems that we have on earth is what to do with nuclear waste right that, that is that is a legitimate that is a legitimate concern and there are some solutions um that 
basically involves sequestering them very, very, very deep under stable earth. Vitrification, yeah. And we can't even get that done. No. Look at Yucca Mountain, because it's it's not because (laughs) it won't work. It'll work, and it'll take care of the problem. It's because I don't want somebody... Nimbies, yes. Right? Yep. And sometimes you just have to say, I hear your concern. Tough. <laughs> it's, we, we gotta, we gotta do something with it. But if you are a whim to the political, the political will of the people whining. Mm-hmm. Yes. I can, I can totally see some idiot accepting the notion that driving the nuclear waste out to Nevada through residential neighborhoods is so much worse than putting it on top of a giant explosive <laughs> and launching it at the moon. Yeah. Right? yeah I, I remember, I remember, uh, it's not in my backyard, so it's okay. Right. Running that idea by, I think my second or third grade teacher, you know, so why can't we just shoot it all into space? And pretty much I was told, well, what happens when the rocket explodes? I didn't have an answer for that because I was in third grade. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we don't launch it from Florida. We we launch it from somewhere in um, uh, equatorial Africa. Exactly. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and how do we get the nuclear waste to equatorial Africa? And how, how much do we pay them? For that? Uh, burrows <laughs> yeah. and lots of carrots. Yeah. And if you're going to launch it into space, uh, silly, silly, but... You know, would would you not go for the sun at that point? Yeah, I mean, you might as well. I mean, yeah, it takes a little bit of energy to get there. But, you know, once you're out of the Earth's gravity well, yeah, it just falls in. There you go. Done. I, I'm pretty sure that that's not going to have a major problem on the sun if it uh, nope, drops a little bit of atomic waste in there. No. So here's a difference. Um, and I think it, in a way it, it helped. In a way, it was a little confusing, but I, I think I know where this is going to go. There were, I think, something like over a thousand visitors on Moonbase Alpha. Yes. Including school children. Yep. All there to watch the Metaprobe go. Mm-hmm. Which, the fact that they take tourists, sign me up. I'm going. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not a problem. I'll be there tomorrow. I, I'm definitely <laughs> going to go see that. Koenig tries to evacuate them, which, of course, will cause a panic and news will get to earth that there's something wrong right. which is what simmons doesn't want but they are getting people out of out of the moon base now according to the computer report when the accident happened there were still 1120 people on the moon <laughs> yes and there are some 300 people who are in the crew of moon base alpha which uh-huh. means that there was 800 let's call them civilians for want of a better word yep on the moon Yep. When the accident occurred. Yep. After the accident occurred, <laughs> yes. there were only 331 survivors. Yep. Unlike the original where basically everyone lived, the 300 some people from Alpha were the 300 and some people that were launched into space. Here, 331 of a melange of 800 civilians and 300 Alphans yep. have survived, which would lead me to believe that Perhaps statistically, only one third of these people are actually trained Moonbase Alpha crew. Yeah, 
of oh, the survivors. I can buy that. Yeah, yeah. Now they did also go out of their way to say that Moonbase Alpha could function with a crew of one hundred, which oddly enough is one third. Yep. Of the surviving number of people, and statistically about the number of Alphans that should have survived. So. This might be setting us up for more stories with people who were not meant to be on Alpha, including children. Yeah, hopefully they won't freak out as badly as Simmons did. <laughs> well, <laughs> but we all know what happened to him. Well, in the series, not, in the series, yes, might be different in this one. Might but be different kinda, in this one. I not. certainly hope not. <laughs> yes, it's a horrible thing, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely want that to happen to Simmons again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. <clears throat> yeah. Now, that could be very interesting if, if uh, you know, we have episodes where, or at least some mission of trying to uptrain people to do, you know, basic tasks around Alpha. Yeah. It it, it, it also, I, I, I hate to think of this uh, from the, uh, what is it? It's the... Uh, Doylean is the Watsonian and the the Doylist or Doylean explanation from the from the writer's standpoint. It also gives you more opportunities to explain what's going on. Oh yeah, a lot of easy exposition for for uh, for stuff if you have to which, explain. Which yeah, could be a tricky one. Yeah. yeah. Um. The the one last thing I have on my list is just to discuss this alternate universe. And I admit, I took a pop at the Republicans, and that may or may not be fair. <laughs> Uh, uh, it's fair. <laughs> yeah, it all depends um, on what side of the fence you're on. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, you know, our space funding has been severely curtailed. And I know that Moonbase Alpha is not an American-only thing, but, you know, back when Space 1999, the TV series, was created, you know, it was the American space program that was driving most everything, and the Russians, as reflected in Gorsky. Yes, yes. Uh, being, being on the base. And in in our world, one, you know, there were some disastrous problems. Like, one, people got in who didn't want to spend money on space exploration. Two, they sold them on that boondoggle. Sorry, people. It's a boondoggle of the space shuttle. It didn't start out to be a boondoggle, but some nice politicians turned it into one. Yes. <sighs> yeah. Um, it was hugely expensive and did not really advance our space program at all. No. No. Right? I mean, you can tell because ISS is being assembled by or being maintained by Russians in just plain old Soyuz rocket ships. Right, exactly. Progress the of space Soyuz. shuttle just and didn't... only and only now are being starting, you know, starting to be serviced by uh you know non governmental entities. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a very, very expensive program. Right. Which, strangely enough, the Air Force now has their own space truck that they're apparently quite happy with. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it routinely goes up for a few years at a time. So you know, they win, I guess. Yeah. Uh, you know, I guess that's Shuttle Mark II, perhaps. But, um, yeah, not saying that there aren't uses for it. It's just that we basically invested everything in it. Right. You know, bet the farm on it. And it turns out when the first one blew up, that freaked everybody out, set it back millions, billions, millions, <laughs> billions, yeah, and, billions and years. And then when the second one went, like, yeah, no, this is not a good plan. And and 
that's the world we live in. Obviously, that didn't happen right. in this alternate universe. And I, and I think it's bold of them to, to try this approach, right? I mean, space, this is like I say, space 2099, it makes more sense, but that's not the show. Right. And so they had to find a way and they kind of set it in this alternate timeline where we didn't not spend money on space. And right. we went from Gemini to Apollo to Eagles. <laughs> it would be kind of interesting to see if there's any concession to what the world was really like in 1999. Hmm. You know, will somebody talk about being back on Earth and having a, a cell phone or, you know. Like a flip phone, because 1999. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, having something, you know, a com lock on Earth. I kind of assumed that they used them, but we never got any sort of, you know, confirmation that that actually happened. Oh, that it happened on Earth? Yeah, that they used In com the locks. You I'd know, have to the, watch the, the, the episode again. The one or two again. times that we saw Earth, uh, no, I don't think they, I mean, they probably didn't in actual bases, but the one or two times we were on Earth maybe only one time we were actually on earth was a flashback a little bit and you know it was still all wooden doors and paneled offices and hospitals. very 1970s yeah yeah you know you only do the fancy stuff on the moon because <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to just put doors <laughs> right yeah <laughs> or have telephones it makes me nostalgic for what could have been <laughs> I don't think we would have had fast near near fast as light drive. Not fast and light, near fast. Right, right. That at least is theoretically possible. Uh, but getting to the Earth and the between the Earth and the Moon in a day or so, that'd be nice. It's like three now, right? I believe so. Yeah. That's. I seem to recall it was a three day transit for the Apollo, and I can't yeah. imagine that ships are any faster. Actually. Uh no. Well, I mean, currently no. Definitely not. I mean, that's those are velocities that you really don't need when you're going to the space station. Yeah, and and it's it's a function. We're still using chemical rockets for all that stuff, and so unless they have chemicals that burn with more force now, it would be the same. I think they have rocket motors that are a little bit more efficient, but you'd still need a lot of propellant and a lot of uh, energy being expended to get you past the space station to the moon. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I have anything else about it. It's unusual for us on the podcast to be talking about a restaging. Certainly, it's weird for us to be talking about a, a an audio. But, you know, a lot of it is the same as what we've talked about before on Space 1999. So I don't, I didn't need to go there. I kind of went for the stuff that was different. Um, but I, doggone, I, I had high hopes going into it and... They didn't disappoint for me. No, when you made me aware of this, it's like, oh, okay, I'll listen to it. Sure, why not? And then after the first, you know, first, uh, uh, I guess you call it episode, first segment, mm. it's like, yep. oh, yeah, yeah, this is definitely good. I, I want to hear the rest of this. I want to see where they're going with this, how they handle all the, the bits and pieces. Yep. Yeah. Very nice. Do you have anything else on this particular? No, no. Um, hopefully, uh, Professor Bergman will not uh, kind of lose his uh, oh, yeah. his, his science scienceiness uh, and kind of just go for the uh, the awe and splendor of the universe. Oh the, yeah, that how whole it worked, metaphysical how, stuff was exactly. Annoying. It just kind of goes all metaphysical on us. Hopefully, that won't happen. But you know, it it might. 
but if it does, I have a feeling that it will be explained properly. You know, the, the, the thing about Professor Bergman, and I think this is down to the exact same thing as the writers who would call our solar system a galaxy or a universe, <laughs> right? I think yeah. it had to do with Victor Bergman is the greatest scientist we have. Let, let's let's just let's just play it that way. Victor okay. Bergman is fantastic. He's the greatest we've got, and the reason that he's the greatest is that he is not constrained by dogmatic <laughs> scientific thinking. I suppose now, I think that's what they were going for. That Victor Bergman can see yeah. outside that narrow restrictive box of science, <laughs> and he can he can make the connections, but that does have to be predicated on the notion that you can't measure everything with science, which I don't subscribe to <laughs> as a, as a general position. Um, I don't subscribe to the notion that scientists are blinkered because they are locked to the scientific mindset. Oh no, definitely Sci not. That, that is a tool for being not blinkered. <laughs> this exactly. is a tool for exactly. finding out when you are being blinkered. Right. It's all those things. But the writers are, it's almost like that Frankenstein thing again, <laughs> where, you know, scientists are, are, you know, blinded to the bigger implications. Right. And, right. Uh, and I think that's what they were going with with Victor Bergman, because I don't think it was ever meant to be negative. It was negative, but it was never meant to be a negative. It was meant to be a positive, and they just didn't. They didn't pull it off work. very well, right? Yeah, and he should be the one solving, you know, those types of problems instead of just kind of blue skying it for John Koenig. And and so yeah, no, right. I, I I really they've given me such a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling about <laughs> that they've thought about this. That they, I, I would, I would, ah, oh, what I wouldn't give to sit down for an hour with Mr. Briggs <laughs> and talk Space 1999 with him because uh, that would I, be I have one a hell feeling of an interview. I would love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really wow. Yeah. It's like, okay, good job, you, but let's talk Space 1999. Exactly. <laughs> what do you think about this? So, all right. Well, if you don't have anything else. Nope. Bigfinish.com is where you can get it. I don't get anything out of that. So that's that's a plug just if you wanted to find it. I'll be sure to put a link in the the description notes. so you can track this thing down if you're interested in hearing it. And um, maybe they'll keep making them. I do not know if we will continue reviewing them, but there will be more. So I, I hope there'll be more. I do too. Even if we don't review them on your, I, I look forward to picking them one up and and listening to the next episode. I will definitely be getting them. Yeah. <laughs> that anyway. All right, John. Thank you for joining me. Oh, you are very welcome. And listeners, I hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can be a sponsor and get early access to all episodes and more at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. Come join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. All episodes are available at fusionpatrol.com. 
Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production.